Well, these 38 short years that I've been preaching from the scriptures and being a part of God's people, many, many times have I turned to the words of this passage of text that Cindy just read. Words that have stayed with me and grown as the years have gone by to a level of far more importance than they did when I began that journey in Scripture years and years ago. This past week, while I was off on retreat contemplating some of the challenges before us and making plans for how we would move forward to meet them, I was out in some of God's country again, where real people live. That's what I tell my children. And you say, what do you mean, Doug? Well, I was in East Texas, deep East Texas, about two hours from Houston and trees so tall you could hardly see the top of them, so tall you could hardly get radio signals, not a bad thing. You could hardly get uh, phone signals, even better thing. I was out there just about 400 yards from a nice golf course set alongside a reservoir and trees. And for all of those who are curious, no, I did not play golf that week. So I do have some kind of willpower. But while you're there and you're just taking in the grandeur of it and taking in many simple homes of people who live simple lives, I was reminded of the way that I was raised, of the home that I was brought up in, where no one had been to college, where no one was living in the city. In fact, everybody was kind of escaping the city and going back to those rural roots that they had enjoyed for so many years. I thought of men and women that I had known and lives they had lived and how powerful they were. I heard some things I hadn't heard in a while when I would go to the store to buy something to eat or, or just to get away from the silence. You know, I don't do silence really well. And yes, I was by myself for those three or four days, and so it weighs down on me a little bit. I need somebody to talk, right? And then when they would talk, I would find myself giggling sometimes about that Texan that's really Texan, that country Texan. And I got to thinking about what the gift I had received from so many people in my lives who had a simple concept of life that could be summed up by just saying faithfulness. Faithfulness to the call of fatherhood, faithfulness to the call of motherhood, faithfulness to the call of husband and wife, faithful to the, to the call of being a member of a community and sharing in its joys and its pains, faithful to being a person who could be looked at by their children and their grandchildren and be treasured for the dignity of the life they had lived. And, of course, I thought about the faithfulness of faith that was sometimes expressed in very simple ways and often expressed in what was very real and clear ways to me. And I had to ask myself the question, do, do we have such a, a clear understanding of faithfulness in the world today? Or the sounds and the noise and the clamoring for a world and a life and a faith that is more about what we want than about what's in the scriptures overshadowing that 
pure and simple faith that seems so easy in comparison to life today. You'll not be surprised to know I didn't get all the answers while I was there in those few days. But these words kept coming to my mind. These words that Paul shared with Timothy, his son in the faith who had been called to preach from Paul's ministry to his mother and grandmother of Timothy. And when Paul came close to the end of his life, he penned these words to Timothy and sent them to him. It was a letter of encouragement and a a letter reminding him to fulfill the ministry that he had been called to. And here he's kind of summing it up when he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Paul was summing up his life of faithfulness, if you will, making it clear that faithfulness was so important not just for him, but for the faith that he had passed on for Timothy to live it out in the same kind of way. While I was there, I kept getting texts from Cindy as she kept me apprised of what was going on in the church. I left with some burdens and some more were there for us to pray about and to reflect on as loved ones and church family members were saying goodbye to loved ones and other church members were struggling with health and finding God's way as they cared for our loved ones that they had been with for so many years. And yet other faithful ones were preparing for a life together to celebrate marriage and the upcoming excitement that all that brings. And you just get this kind of picture of, of the largeness of faith, how big faithfulness has to be, how broad it has to be understood, and how progressive is its nature in our lives as we grow up from children even up into aging adults. It is a, something that is alive. It is something that is vibrant. It is something that steers our lives in different ways than they would ever be steered were we not people of faith. But I just wondered, what did Paul mean? I have kept the faith. It seemed so clear to him when he said it. And I wondered, do we make it that clear for others in our world today? As the world has gotten more sophisticated and more intellectual and more complicated in some ways, and in some ways it's no different than it's ever been, And yet we seem to struggle with it more. I've held the hands of those who are close to death. I've held the hands of those who have lost loved ones in times of normal death and in times of great pain and shock. I've been there to study people for these years and to try and grasp for my own life what it means to be faithful, not just as a pastor, but as a man, as a person, as a human being on the earth in which I live. And I come to realize that there are many shades of faithfulness. And I, I thought about the things we used to get as toys. It was a great toy back in the day. Now they kind of give them away in small packages. You know, you look into it. I think it's called, is it called a kaleidoscope? And you turn it, and you get all these different colors and shades, and you just twist it around, and all those little rocks are in there separating the light. It makes all kinds of designs. And you're just amazed how long you can sit there and look at the many different lights shining and how they can change as you're looking at them. And I thought that, you know, life is a lot like that. That once we begin to view life from the perspective of faith, trust, if you will, in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then as the light from life comes into us, we see many different shapes and opportunities for faithfulness. 
We understand it in larger and yet sometimes even smaller ways according to the situations that we are facing. I think about how the world sometimes talk about faith now. Uh, people who are outside the family of the church, if you will. And I, I remember things I was taught in school. I remember it was at Asbury where I first learned a phrase that has stayed with me for a long time. I really never thought about it before, but when I was studying the writings of John Wesley and we were taught in that theology that John Wesley brought to the church the idea that faith was more than mental assent. In the Church of England, in which he was uh, ministering in, faith had become rational. It had become intellectual. And it had become something that was simply a matter of uh, saying that you believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And that mental assent was being mistaken for faith. And John Wesley clearly saw that faith was much more than mental assent, but it certainly included mental assent. I thought about saying what does it mean to people when they say that Jesus was the Son of God, and they believed that. And they also believed that that understanding, that phrase, meant that they were going to heaven just by believing it in their heads. And, and I realize that Scripture says so much more than that about faith, although it does say that as well. It is, again, a big part. I remember the Big Ten. Uh, some of you have gone to school and you don't know what the Big Ten is, but the Ten Commandments used to be in all the schools. You know, it was on all the walls. The Ten Laws that God gave uh, His first children. The Ten Commandments, the Big Ten. If you kept the Big Ten, you're going to be pretty much all right. And you, God would have to be pleased with you. And I thought, the Big Ten really kind of fell out of what Jesus was coming to talk about in one sense. Because we break the Big Ten all the time. And so were the ones who thought they were keeping it. And yet... Faith is even larger than the Big Ten, although, again, keeping the big commandments, keeping the small commandments are true. I thought about how some people think about by moral living that they are being faithful people. If I don't go to jail, if I make a decent living, if I take care of my kids and my grandkids, then I'm, pro I'm going to heaven because I'm a moral person, and God's got to be happy with that. And, you know, really when I hear that out in the world, I'm going, but no and, and no. Uh, no, God's not happy with that, and no, that won't get you to heaven. It's part of it. Our moral beliefs are important. But if you start reading the scriptures closely, you'll find there are a lot more about relationships and the relationships we have with God than they are about the morality of laws, although morals are important. Especially in America, in the West, morality became a huge thing. I'm going to ask a question, I guess for my own edification. How many of you spent any part of your early life growing up in a Baptist church in Texas or in the South? You said, well, Doug, did you really? I didn't know you went to a Baptist church. I had girlfriends that went. <laughs> and they had revivals, and, you know, you just had to show up. So I, I kind of got the picture. You know, from that perspective, when you grew up, how many sermons did you ever hear about how evil alcohol was? Yeah, some of you don't want to admit that. I got it. I had some friends. They were good Baptists. Actually, they weren't good Baptists. They were Methodists who went to Baptist churches. <laughs> but they didn't really know that. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? I mean, one day we were on the golf course, and I asked them. I was the only teetotaler in the group, and that's why I always won toward the end. 
I never thought it sinful to beat the Baptist at golf. But I asked one one day, one man who was there, his pastor was playing golf with us, and he hadn't had a, a beer all day long. And this was one of the biggest fun-loving boys in the whole town. And fun usually meant he had a beer when he was out playing golf. And I said, he, he made the comment to me, a Methodist. I was a lot younger than I am now. I'm not nearly as smart as I am now. And he said, man, I would love to have a beer. And I said, well, you always do. What's stopping you? He said, well, my pastor's here playing golf, and he would have a fit if he saw me get a beer. You know what I did, right? It was a moment of sin. I said, so you drink one all the time, but you're not going to drink one just because he's here. He went and got a beer. And boy, did I beat pastor from the Baptist church badly that day because he went nuts once he had a beer in his hand. And I thought, really? Did you ever read the part about Jesus turning the jugs of water into wine? And it was so much stronger than the wine they'd had before, which was typically watered down to make it stretch. It was strong wine. And Jesus served it at a wedding. Is there a way to use even the fruit of the vine that's not sinful? I know I'm lining up appointments for counseling this week in my office. I'll be hard to find. I've already planned ahead. <laughs> but the reality is that, you know, some, for some people, that was the greatest sin in the world unless it would be going to the pool hall and shooting pool because that was a terrible place to be. Well, there's something about a round pool ball rolling around and falling into a hole that made it an evil place, right? I never understood that one. Uh, there was the, the sins about, there were all the things that we told people not to do. And if you don't do these things, then you're going to heaven. You're going to be a good, faithful Christian. Hmm. I don't know about that. Because as I have grown up and gotten older and been into the text more and more over the years, I don't really think that the do's and don'ts that Christians are so love to make lists out of are the most important things about their faith. I've come to believe wholeheartedly that how much you love your neighbor, that how much you care for the orphan and for the sick, that how much you care about loving God and praising Him and spending time with Him, probably on a, a scale of morality versus presence with God, Presence with God and love for the things of God are more important than even the rules that you're going to break. You know, the trouble with the Ten Commandments is when you keep them, you learn that there's really ten more after that, and then ten more after that. And then finally, I believe they were up to 687 laws in the Jewish book of rules. And Jesus said, you, you, you break one of them, you might as well break them all. That's not the, that's not the point of them. The rules were to guide us toward a way of living, but the only way to really get there is when our heart was changed, when our heart became a heart of faith after the things of God. Chasing the things of God will keep you away from the things you don't need to be around, much more than trying to say, no, I can't do this or I can't do that. I've known people that have been in church all of their life, and they would give $10 if it took it, or maybe 20 to save a family whose house had burned, 
while they were living in the midst of wealth. But they were so tied to the love of their own money that they wouldn't turn loose of it, and yet they thought they were being faithful. Faithful? Faithfulness is about your heart. Faithful is about your stewardship. Faithfulness is about how much you love others enough to love them even when they are sinning. You love a teenager enough that when they're a mess, you take them into your home. That's loving them. That's faithfulness. Faithfulness is when you're with someone and they're embroiled in a sin that you know is a sin, they shouldn't be doing it, you don't say anything about it. You just pray for them because you know then is not the time to talk to them about whether their life is with God or not. We, we, we kind of dumbed it down. In fact, many people outside the church today believe that the church is made up of people who can't wait to catch them doing something wrong about a God who wants to punish them instead of about a God who wants to give them abundant life, which is what Jesus said. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Now, that doesn't mean just doing anything you want. It means receiving that abundant life with God and then it affecting everything else so that the way you live is an effect of what you believe, of the faith you have. Faithfulness in the Scripture, when it was talking about true faithfulness, perfect faithfulness, is always about God. It's never about us. You know why? Duh. We look in the mirror and we know why. Because even when we're faithful, we're unfaithful, aren't we? Which one of you have led a perfect day lately where you had not one stray thought? Not one selfish motive. Not one evil twist to what you were doing, which you were really serving yourself. Which of you out there want to raise your hand and tell me that you prayed fervently and did exactly what God has told you to do every week for one week? Just one week. Some of you are thinking about it. Now, if you think you have, I want to do surgery. I want to take your heart out. And lie it on the table. And see if your heart was as Jesus' heart. Whose heart was consumed with the mission of God. We spend a lot of time cheerleading as pastors. Trying to encourage people to do the things. That should be in us because of the faith we have. And because of our commitment to the mission of God. In fact, that's what makes this church so special to me. Whether there's 300 of us together or 400 of us together or 100 of us together, your faithfulness is what attracts me to this congregation. You're faithful in giving what you contribute as a portion of what God has given you. Your faithfulness to gather around one another and pray, just as you saw today, up and down the Chancellor Royal, as people were feeling needs, they were coming to pray. Last night I went to the hospital because a call went out. That someone needed prayer. And when I went there, I found other church members were already there praying for the ones who need their prayer the most. Faithful. Faithful to care for one another. Faithful to give of what they have to one another. When you worship, your faithfulness is so evident that you're really enjoying the act of coming together and seeing one another. I heard yet another story today. I hear them all the time about people who visit and say, your church is so friendly. They, they, they are so welcoming to people who come. And I just sit there and grin and go, yep, 
And then they, maybe they say, man, I don't see why everybody's not there. And then I go, me too. I don't know. I don't understand it. Except maybe they just don't know what we're doing. Maybe people out there don't know much about what we're enjoying so much of because maybe we're not as faithful in our witness as we are in our stewardship of giving or in our stewardship of teaching. Perhaps. I don't know that for sure, but I wonder. But what I really wonder then when I'm thinking about Paul and what he's thinking is I wonder about this man Jesus. Because he is the object of our faith. He is the one in whom we trust, that we believe. And I ask what myself, what did he teach us toward the end of his ministry? Because really the Sundays after Easter are all about that, between Easter and Pentecost. We look back on the conclusion of Jesus' ministry and what the resurrection tells us about Jesus, and we, and we make new perspectives. We get new perspectives for ourselves. And so as we look back on Jesus, I, I, I think about those last hours, those last couple of days. I think about the words that he taught. He came to teach them about salvation. He poured himself out into them. The book of John in chapters 13 through, through 17 are just such beautiful chapters where Jesus just poured it all out. Letting them know, this is going to happen. I'm sending the paraclete. This is what's going to happen. You're going to meet me here. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. But don't worry. I'm sending someone who's going to come after me, who's going to take care of you. All these things Jesus was pouring into them, even as he had been doing for those three years, he was a faithful teacher of the salvation, the gift of new birth that he had received from the Christ. That was Paul. Jesus was the purveyor and the example of all of that for the world to see, not just then, but for these 2,000 years later. And then I think about that walk on the way to Jerusalem. You ever made a long journey and, and you knew when you got to the end of that journey it was not going to be fun? You know how hard it was to do that? You know how, when you really... Knew you needed to do something, but you knew it was going to really be hard. And you really didn't want to do it, but you knew you ought to do it. And it was just, man, it just wore you out, didn't it? Just getting there. Here's this man walking to Jerusalem, knowing that there's a cross waiting there for him. And he's still talking to God about it, wanting to get out of it if he can. And his disciples are constantly telling him, first of all, they're telling him the, the, the really sweet stuff, right? When you get to heaven, can I sit on your right? Can I, and can my brother be on your left? Because after all, aren't we your favorites? Don't you know after three years of teaching to him, he wanted to pull his hair out at that point? And he had long hair, too. That would have hurt. But, you know, he, he did probably he, he scolded him for it. But that's where their minds were, were at that point. He gets there, and one of the texts talks about how he looks out over the city of Jerusalem. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how I would gather you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks. But you would not. The most impressive thing, perhaps, about Jesus' faith is it was always in the face of faithlessness. The way we understand faith is by seeing how faithful Jesus was and how faithless we are at times in our own lives, even when we're walking with him daily. Then I think about the Garden of Gethsemane, as I told the children. They just couldn't stay away. You know, they were tired. They had to get some sleep. In the face of faithlessness, he was faithful. And even he said, Father, can we do this another way? I mean, I get it. I know that you've, 
calling me here, but can we just do this some other way? But then his faith comes through bright and clear. And to me, this is the moment. This is the moment where all of the faithful things he had done previously and all the future things he would do are captured in this one statement when he says, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And I think, wow, he was able to pull it off. He was able to do it. He was able to make that decision, exercise his will, and trust in the sweet presence of the Father through the ordeal that he was facing. Now, I've got a whole, that was half, that was one page of my notes. It's kind of dangerous to get off by yourself for a while. But when I ask myself, well, so what then, if I was going to do, describe the faithfulness of Jesus, how would I say he was faithful? I would say he was faithful, first of all, to the relationship he had with the Father. He prayed often and regularly, and he looked at everything in perspective to what he had been taught in the Scriptures so that his actions would mirror the actions of the Father. He was faithful to relationship. He valued his relationship to the Father above all else. Secondly, I would say that he valued the mission of God. The mission of God above all the rest of his life. And that's a tough one for us. The mission of his life was very much secondary to the mission of God and the way God had called him to fulfill that mission. Even to the point of a cross, he was willing to do whatever it took to help God accomplish his mission. That is faithfulness. The relationship he valued, and he valued that very mission of God that is clear in the Scriptures. I think he also valued teaching those around him because he loved and cared about those disciples. So he valued passing on. And that's why he gave his, most of his time to teaching those 12 men. And then to the extended community. So that they would have the time and the opportunity to really soak it in. So that they could get a true kaleidoscope. Many views of the faithfulness of God. So that they wouldn't be hung up on just some things. You know, one thing. One idea of faithfulness. So they would see the broad scope. You got a blind man, I'll heal him. You got someone who's sick, you you got someone who's not a person of faith, not even part of the Jewish community, but who has faith that I can heal their child, I'll heal them. So that you will see the faith is bigger than just the faith for just my people. It's for the whole world. Bring someone into my presence that people won't touch because they're outcasts, and I'll embrace them. I will bring healing to them because I love them, and I'll be faithful to love the people that I live with. And lastly, I would say he was faithful in being a servant. A servant. Someone asked us this morning, what does this mean being a servant? It just sounds negative. And the culture in which they're in, they, they were kind of a servant was almost like a slave. And so we had a long talk about what it means to be a servant by choice as opposed to being forced into a servanthood role. You see, so much of faithfulness is about the journey that we take. 
And this is where I ended up and where I'm going to end up today. When I get to that point, which is getting ever nearer, when my time is, is over, my days are done, so to speak, I want to be able to say what Paul said. I want to be able to say, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. Now, if you say, are able to say those things when that time comes, if you're able to say that and mean it, what will that mean? I fought the good fight. My faith is not about it always being easy for me. My faith is not about a new car that I got or how big a house I live in. Those are just things that happen or don't happen according to a lot of things in life. But I want my faith to be about fighting to see that people know the Lord Jesus Christ. Struggling, not for just my faith and my own transformation, but for the opportunity for other people to hear about the stories of the Scripture, about the stories of lives that I've been in contact with, so that they will decide to enter into the struggle of faith. We are living in an opportune time. Thank God half the world is lost. It's like the old joke from Africa. The salesman comes back and he says, nobody wears shoes over there. And the salesman who's never been says, I want to go there because everybody needs shoes. That's what we're living in right now. Half the people around you don't have a healthy concept of the faith of Jesus Christ. And we get to tell them if we don't get too hung up about how they're living right now. I've never seen a medicine yet that can't change. I've never met anyone yet that didn't need to change. Inside the church, as well as outside the church. Sin is a progressive thing, too. The little faith I used to have was about this tall. And God had pity on me and encouraged me through the years by showing me more. And God has helped me in ways that I've taken advantage of and ways that I haven't. I've not always been perfectly faithful. Maybe you can relate to that. I promise you there's a whole world out there that can relate to that. If you can just remember that they need you to relate to them. They need you to love them like they are, not like what they're going to become to be. Because this faith thing, it's a process. You have it. My grandson has it. And he's seven. But I pray to God that it doesn't stay where it is now. I want him to grow up into that faith. Because then he'll have something to share that people can relate to. Faithfulness is a great value in this church. It's one of the ways that I describe you to other people. Your faithfulness to worship, your faithfulness to be engaged in worship, your faithfulness to people around the world. Your faithfulness to one another and your care for one another. When I talk about you, I talk about faithfulness. I hope and pray that in our faithful family, we're always open to continue our growth. Because whatever I knew in the past is not enough to sustain me in the present. 
And whatever I know right now today is not enough to sustain me in the future. My faith needs to keep growing. And so does yours. God has been faithful to you this week. Praise God for that. Father in heaven, I thank you for these faithful people. I thank you for the faith that they've learned, for the faith that they have at this moment, and for the faith that you will grow in them as they continue to seek relationships with you. As they continue, Lord, I pray that their relationship with you will make clear and more powerful that vision of ministry that is yours, that vision of mission that you are calling us toward, that we might be able to allow it to overcome the central focus on ourselves and push us to the central focus on the world that is lost. I pray, Lord, for that mission-centered focus to grow in all of us. Thank you, Lord, for that mission. Thank you for those who have taught us and for the privilege of passing on our faith to our children and their children. I thank you, Lord, for that open call, that opportunity you've given to me to choose to serve. Not, not just to choose to serve when it's convenient, but to choose to be a servant so that I might hear your voice when you call me. And I pray, Lord, that you might call us all all into this ministry that you've entrusted to us. That we might be stewards, faithful stewards of that which has been entrusted to us. In the name of Jesus, I ask this for us all. Now, Lord, if there's someone here that has never proclaimed or confessed their faith in you, today is a good day for that. And I pray that you'll move in their hearts. If there's someone here that is yours, Lord, but has never fully jumped into the church because they just weren't sure about the church. I pray, Lord, that they'll feel your, your wooing, that they'll feel your drawing them into the ministry that you set aside for your people through your instrument, the church. Let them come forward, Lord, if they need to today. And if there are those, Lord, who just need a recommitment, I pray that they just come and find their place as we sing and pray their hearts out at this chancel rail before we go out into this world to be your people. For this is my prayer for us all in Christ's name. Amen. Will you stand and sing with me?